rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Good day. Welcome to HealthScape, a new podcast on Voice of America Health and Wellness channel. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. The first two podcasts are going to be a little different from the rest in order to give you some context and background about me and the work I do. In these episodes, I will be the one who's interviewed. And so I would like to introduce you to Dee Daniels, who has kindly offered to help in this regard. Dee's a journalist and executive producer on Voice America. Good afternoon, Dee. Welcome to Healthscape. Good afternoon, Trevor. Wow, I'm so excited um, to be here to kind of help you to introduce everybody uh, to Healthscape and some of the work that you will be doing in terms of bringing information to them about chronic pain uh, on your series of podcasts. So I'm super excited and I thank you for allowing me to come in and talk to you uh, on behalf of this. Now, I think I just want to get right in there because I got a chance to learn a lot about you uh, and your work and your background. And I think it's important to share that with the audience. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, professional background and training and where you're from. And, and let's go from there. Tell us, tell us more about uh, your background. Okay. Well, <clears throat> I'm, I'm from Cape Town, South Africa. And I went to school there and um, went to the University of Cape Town, where I qualified as a physician in 1981 um, and worked as a family physician mostly, but also doing some occupational medicine until 1996 uh, when I moved to Canada. Um, I, my work's mainly involved a rehabilitation, uh, family medicine, rehabilitation and disability medicine occupational medicine, and then I became very interested in chronic pain and started focusing on this, particularly a type of treatment modality called the biopsychosocial approach, which we'll talk more about. So here I am, um, you know, uh, doing chronic pain management. Wow. Well, I, you know, that's an area that, you know, so many people uh, around the world suffer from some form of chronic pain. And with that being said, I guess one of the things I want to have you do is just tell us exactly what does that mean? What is chronic pain? Well, <laughs> chronic pain is more of a disease or disorder. It is not simply the extension of the symptom of chronic of pain. People know acute pain or sudden onset short-lived pain, but this disorder of chronic pain you see it have brain changes, which can be visualized on special imaging, such as functional MRIs. Now, even before we had this type of imaging, chronic pain always kind of behaved as a disease in other ways, like tending to just do its own thing. For example, becoming suddenly worse for no reason, a variable time after the surgery disease or injury that triggered the original chronic pain. And this happened without re-injury or aggravation. There are also other things that it responds to, not so much painkillers, but 
old-fashioned antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and membrane stabilizers. So there was thing, there were things there to suggest that it's a disease. Now, most people with chronic pain don't fully understand the fundamental differences between acute or sudden onset pain in response to an injury or surgery and chronic pain, in my view. And so their ongoing pain is often met with ongoing dismay. So the first thing one has to do is educating, educate them regarding the nature of their condition and try to expel some of the myths. Right. So that's my understanding that there's so many different myths as it relates to this. So can you kind of tell um, the audience what some of these myths are? Well, apart from the disease symptom myth, which we've just gone over, there's a few others. Now, the basis underlying this chronic pain disease is maladaptive, which just means unhelpful or negative brain changes that occur through a process called neuroplasticity, which basically just means the brain's ability to change itself under certain conditions. Now, normally this process works very well for us, such such as when we learn new information or skills, as in taking on a new job or learning a new new, uh, trade, in order to accommodate the latest information your brain takes on, it has to change itself. And it does so mainly by growth and reorganization of the neurons or nerve cells. Now, the neuroplastic brain changes, even though we've depended had to depend on it for everything that we've achieved, can also be unfortunate, as in chronic pain. But the good news is that what has been learned can be unlearned. For example, if I were five years old when my parents emigrated and um, I stopped speaking my birth language for 50 years, I would forget a lot of my birth language from this use. So it works both ways. You can learn and you can unlearn. Now, so acute, or what we call what we call acute or sudden onset pain from an injury that eventually heals is not a brain condition. It's a physical condition. But chronic pain is a brain disorder with changes in the brain. And that is why it's difficult to treat with medication, injection therapy, physical therapy, and other therapies alone. Now, another myth is that somehow when you feel hurt or pain, that this equals harm or tissue damage. This is an assumption people make. In chronic pain, this is not generally the case, as the pain from the original injured body part with time spreads to other areas of the brain, such as what Eric would call the prefrontal cortex, which is associated with emotions and memory, and then other parts, uh, I can't even name them all, um, amygdaloid bodies where the fear uh, issues are dealt with and processed, hippocampus, which was memory. So it spreads in the brain, becomes a far bigger circuitry, if you want to look at it in terms of electrical wiring, like in a house, okay? And eventually, the chronic pain can be triggered by a variety of seemingly unrelated factors, such as anxiety, poor sleep, low mood, or other factors. The third myth that we get is patients will say to me, well, how can it be in my brain? I always and only feel the pain in my injured arm. Well, in a case like that, we then go on to explain the phenomenon of so-called phantom pain, which, by the way, we have known about for over five centuries. People can still have ongoing pain following an amputation of a limb. 
which is experiencing precisely the area where the limb once was, sometimes even many years after the amputation. Now, the explanation here is that the neuron or cell, net cell networks have spread and been re replicated in other parts of the brain and no longer need that limb to generate the pain. Wow, that's, um, <laughs> that's very fascinating, interesting in itself. And I know I've heard individuals, uh, sometimes I've heard a few people that have had surgeries in the past. And then after the surgery, I mean, like months on, they say they still feel like that pain in that area where the incision is. And so, um, and then I've heard they've said that's some form of phantom pain. So that's like really interesting. Yeah, it certainly is. But it's also sobering, Dee, as patients suddenly realize that they are dealing with a completely different situation than they suspected. And it's not like a simple injury as when you would strain your knee, that's something that usually heals after a few weeks. Now, this kind of information is important because it allows them to accept a, trait, a treatment kind of modality that at first looks somewhat unconventional compared to what they normally receive from a physician. So let me ask you this then. Um, why is it that some people, you know, develop this uh, chronic pain, but then other people don't? Well, actually, it's believed that we learn chronic pain. <laughs> So this is not in any way to suggest that people were somehow looking for chronic pain, of course. Pain is learned when certain unhelpful behaviors trigger changes that cause more unhelpful behaviors to develop. It's really a process. The process usually starts with an abnormal pain focus. Now, obviously, when you hurt something on your body, it's hurting a lot. It's not the kind of thing you can ignore, right? But what we see in chronic pain is an early and intense pain focus, which eventually leads to further unhelpful behaviors, such as hypervigilance or a fear that any kind of movement will somehow cause more pain or tissue damage. So you kind of coddle it a bit, you know, the injured part. This is soon followed by fear avoidance, being too scared to do much activity. Uh, and later there's even inactivity and uh, later disability, then a process we call a phenomenon, rather, we call catastrophization, which is a way of thinking can be unconscious, it can be conscious, where you tend to over-report the pain or over-report the situation after moving movement and so forth. And eventually, disability increases and the chronic pain having been learned just becomes entrenched and you have to live with it. So you effectively have a pain cycle fueled by the anxiety that pain signals indicate somehow damage and harm. And this makes the person focus even more on the pain, leading to further neuronal changes in the brain or neuroplastic changes, which generates more pain and more anxiety and less movement and less activity. And you can see how the one reinforces the other, making it worse, unless there's an intervention. Um, wow. So, okay, really, just, it was just fascinating just listening to that. So I think, so really what you're saying is that it's more of how people focus, you know, and respond to that pain that makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, because not everybody who had that operation or that injury goes on to chronic pain. You see, and this is often where their frustration is. They said, you know, my friend who's less fit than I am had a back operation. Mine went better than these, according to the surgeon. And they like, well, they're not, maybe, you know, they, 
their life, they've got back more of their life and I'm still struggling and it's five years and it's like, doesn't make sense. So what they feel is that the system or the surgeon is covering up, but the surgeon's only reporting as he's following up or she is following up. They don't have no idea how this is necessarily going to end because most people don't get chronic pain from a simple surgery or, well, not doesn't have to be simple, but an injury or so forth. But it's, it's, it happens often enough for 20% of the population to be suffering from chronic pain as we speak. And 25% of people in aging societies, because there's an increase as we age. That's a big uh, number, uh, that 20%, uh, when you think about you know, chronic pain and people that are suffering from that. So how is it that, you know, I guess one of the things I was thinking about um, when you have this conversation with people uh, about chronic pain, you know, how do people react when you explain, you know, chronic pain to them in this way? Well, I have to say, mostly they react with some disbelief, at least at first. Some patients become defensive, saying they can't recall ever being over-focused on pain, like what am I talking about, or catastrophizing, and so on and so on. But eventually, the reality of the situation does sink in, because they can look at their old physician notes, where that's often documented like weeks after the injury or surgery. Now, when it comes to neuroplasticity or the brain's ability to change itself, what we then do in a situation like this is the good news is that the so-called downward spiral into chronic pain can be reversed, allowing one to spiral back up into recovery. And it's like resetting the nerve networks. Remember, I mentioned earlier on that having learned a new language, you can unlearn it by not using it for a long time. So these unfortunate changes through neuroplasticity, which can work in both directions, can be recovered. There can be recovery. Now, there's also, I just want to give you an analogy because analogies help a lot. And we explain a lot to the listeners. Um, there's an analogy that works very well to promote understanding of chronic pain. Now, I have to say that in chronic pain, as opposed to other medical disciplines, we, we actually encourage to use metaphors and analogies when we talk to patients. This is to fast track learning because there's a lot to absorb and to make the information more memorable or stickable, as some say. Um, so for chronic pain, we use the faulty home alarm analogy. Um, you can say that the nerve cells or neurons are all connected to form circuits, something like the electric wiring of a house. And sometimes, like the wiring of a house, they can become faulty. Now, in acute or sudden onset pain, for example, like when you burn your finger on the stove, the pain impulses are immediately transmitted to the brain where the information is interpreted and the necessary response muscles are activated or deactivated because they work in tandem and, op and opposed to each other. And you instantly remove your hand from, from the stove, even before you realize that you burnt it. So the accident has happened, the damage is done, but it's been limited by your withdrawal reflex and eventually your healing will occur. Now, this sequence has great biological or evolutionary value as it limits tissue damage. If you didn't have that, maybe you'd merely wait for the smell before you realize you're burning the pulp of your finger, right? So with chronic pain, it's a completely different story. Here, the alarm system has become so sensitized that although it can still function 
with a hot plate and the finger, same story as before, it, it now becomes activated not only when there's an actual threat, but by events that are completely non-threatening or even unrelated. And this is like an alarm system in a house that is set off not only when the burglar breaks the window, but by a strong wind or even a raccoon walking past the window. There's no biological or evolutionary value here, as the original triggering injury or surgery that caused the chronic pain has long passed, sometimes decades ago. And the damage, frankly, has been done. Now, though the body part has healed as far as it can, pain can still be experienced by an array of these unrelated factors. And these can include simple things like everyday things like fatigue, stress, fears, and emotion. The situation is therefore unhelpful. It doesn't improve your survival and annoying. And, and it needs to be reset now in the home alarm by a technician and um, in chronic pain by appropriate treatment interventions. So it's really as simple as uh, resetting the car alarm or resetting the home alarm. Um, you're saying it's really that simple uh, in, in, in the sense of trying to control chronic pain. Yeah, the analogy, it's a bit, it's, it's going to be lengthier, right? Because it's a process more than right, right. coming in. But, but yeah, it, the analogy holds for it's got to be reset. It's not going to reset itself. Right. But there are things that you can do, which obviously oh, yeah. we'll talk about that later on. But yeah. I guess the point that you really can, you know, if you're having some form of chronic pain, there is a way, a process to be able to uh, reset that. Right. So, right. yeah, I just, you know, I think that's amazing. And I think with so much chronic pain in the world, it's definitely something people want to at least look at and explore um, what that yes. potentially could look like. So uh, what is this essential piece that you recommend, um, uh, Dr. Campbell? Okay, the treatment I'm involved in is that is the treatment that nearly every single chronic pain expert agrees is essential uh, therapy in order for recovery to, to occur. And it's called the biopsychosocial approach. So it's a long-winded name. And it just means that you can't just look at the biomedical aspect. You have to look at the psychological and the social aspects because these are also major drivers that keep the, the pain established and that cause increases in pain when related factors impinge on pain. So what these experts say that you need to have this, it's not only supported by clinical experience, but it's also scientifically evidence-based. Now, it's also important to know that the treatment of chronic pain furthermore should be what we call multimodal. That means it must consist of various categories of treatment, such as it may, cons may con uh, include medication, injection therapy, physical therapies, perhaps even other complementary therapies. But all of these that I'm mentioning now only temporarily reduce the symptom of pain. They do not remove the cause of the disease, while a biopsychosocial approach has the capacity to reverse the actual brain, brain changes. So in medicine, one of the oldest uh, adages or sayings is we should firstly do no harm, which is obviously particularly good advice. But then there's also another one that states that we should 
remove the cause of the disease when possible. Now, for certain diseases that we treat and control, but we don't cure, we don't fully understand the cause of the disease. So we do what we can. Certain kinds of high blood pressure, idiopathic means we don't know the cause, blood pressure. Um, and so this is something that actually addresses those brain changes. Right. So, I mean, when you think about um, high blood pressure and some of those things, that's treating symptoms and not necessarily removing, you know, um, the actual yeah. disease. Whereas, um, you know, with chronic pain, you're looking at a way to actually eliminate it in terms yes. of that, that pain. So is this treatment um, widely accessible? Is this something that, you know, everybody that potentially has some form of pain can, you know, assess or, or have the, you know, the ability to uh, be able to get this treatment? You know, even though the experts agree this treatment is essential for recovery, it is surprisingly hard to access. There are several reasons for this, namely poor physician undergraduate training in the field and consultation times that are way too short to teach and coach the patient. In a walk-in clinic now uh, in North America, five to eight to, to five to eight minutes for for a single problem. And with one's own doctor, you're lucky you're getting 15 to 20 minutes. So this information is well covered in multidisciplinary pain management programs, but these can cost like $50,000 for six weeks. And they include a lot of other things like physical therapies and a whole lot of specialists, but they do cover the... the, um, the uh, biopsychosocial as well. I must say some people have a recommendation to do something that relaxes them or yoga that makes it adds more modalities onto it. But in my view, very few people are getting a strong basis in the psychosocial, uh, the biopsychosocial approach. Well, let me ask you this. When you say, um, you know, that this type of treatment uh, could cost several thousand uh, of dollars for six weeks, and which obviously that makes it out of the reach for most patients. Why do you think that is that something that potentially, you know, could be life changing is so out of reach? Well, as I said, it's, it's, it's the fact that us, the way it's structured, the business of medicine is you don't have the time. I mean, I really only got into this, I was treating chronic pain people, but until I got into a medic, uh, multidisciplinary program, I basically, you know, never had like an hour and a half for the first encounter even. And then the time, you need time to do this or you need it in some digestible form. Uh, even okay. billing is difficult in some countries, and you can be—you'll be surprised how billing can affect the delivery of a service. With, and I'm not talking about amounts payable; I'm talking about the process of billing. So, right. it, there's a lot of factors. D. Um, it, it's sad, actually, to me that it's not yet done, but um, enough. But um, it's a situation okay. we have. Um, so. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess, <laughs> but that's how modern medicine and things are changing more and more. Uh, so that's probably not totally surprising. But I guess, you know, what does the biopsychosocial approach actually entail? What is that all about? Well, it, it may sound strange, but it's a, the first step is to provide the patient with an understanding of what is actually going on. 
with chronic pain. Studies have shown that this alone may reduce their pain levels, probably not the least by reducing some of the anxiety. Now, we must remember that chronic pain is a disease of the brain and sometimes called a biobehavioral disease because there's so many behavioral factors impinging. Because the transition from acute or sudden onset pain to chronic pain depends on an abnormal pain focus, unhelpful behaviors, and perhaps more importantly, the reduction or sometimes even the suspension of everyday helpful behaviors of things that we, you and I will do every day and not even think of it, that are routinely, that the person themselves routinely perform before they develop chronic pain, not even giving a particular thought about it to the, at the time. Therefore, the treatment is not going to come across as a plan that is typically described, uh, prescribed by a physician. So what we urge people to do is to return to their earlier healthful and helpful behaviors that they observed before the onset of chronic pain. So they need to increase their physical activity, even though their pain levels may initially increase, somewhat owing to their longstanding physical deconditioning. As you can imagine, there are usually a number of recommendations and options for them to consider here and choose. Second, they need to activate or increase their social activity and connectivity. Studies performed in the 90s showed that we derive much of our happiness through social connectivity and a sense of community, as well as altruism and gratitude. Now, right now, we're not in a great climate for social connectivity, but this too will pass, one presumes. Um, so we encourage the recovery, consolidation, extension of their inner store of control, these skills that they may have, which they have stopped using for a long time. Uh, that they've now neglected since they've got chronic pain. Uh, now, the point here is perfectly clear. They are encouraged to return where possible to their most healthy state. Um, I just have to mention here that remember the home alarm model we spoke about, the alarm, broken yeah. alarm that still sounded with the raccoon and the wind and so forth. In chronic yeah. pain, the brain uses the, the ongoing pain as a threat signal pain circuits having spread to other brain centers associated with the emotions, fear, memory, and a variety of other areas. Ultimately, no matter what the incoming information, the brain gets to decide whether or not part will express, a body part will express pain. So again, pain is not in your head, but chronic pain expression is controlled by the brain, with the brain always having the last word. Decreasing functionality, a reduced quality of life, and worse, a seemingly ever-shrinking life experience and loss of identity in terms of the role they once had is also likely to be coded by the brain as a threat to their very existence and is often expressed as more pain. This is Dr. Trevor Campbell on Healthscape, uh, Voice America, Health and Wellness Channel. We are just going to take a commercial break, but we'll be right back. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. 
add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. So regarding whether or not the treatment is difficult to follow, um, patients generally find it somewhat challenging at first because it seems so counterintuitive. They'll say, "What you know, the doctor doesn't normally talk like this. Kind of get, can be tricky at times. And it would be unfair to merely give them the advice I've said and then walk away. We simply have to facilitate things for them or else they're unlikely to persevere and we actually set them up for failure. So what to do? What we need to do is some preparatory work with them as well as supportive due diligence. And this is too involved to unpack and explain all in this one interview session. But briefly, it involves helping them build a solid foundation for recovery that better positions them for success right from the start. And we do this by looking at issues, again, not typically medical, meaning what the meaning of the chronic pain is, which we've already touched on, what the meaning is to their life. And it's usually substantial because it's a very life intrusive condition, chronic pain that invades every aspect of their life. Um, and then we also look at acceptance. A lot of people still haven't accepted their chronic pain. They'll tell you 15 years after they developed it, I still can't believe I've got chronic pain. Acceptance issues, and then we look at expectation. And that all helps to give them context so that this it holds the, the activities that they expected to attempt together. We also look at certain issues that can drain the energy and sabotage their success, such as an overly sad and bleak disease story or narrative, because if this is left unchecked, it can quickly morph into their own internal negative dialogue. So obviously, if I had chronic pain, there's a lot going wrong. I need answers. I need relief. I'm going to cram my 20 to 30 minutes with a specialist with as much questions and negative information because I want help as I can. But the danger here is that I end up over years telling that story to my family and friends and then they kick it around socially and eventually people act, react to me according to this very bleak story rather than what is going on. And you see scenarios where someone's at a family reunion and when they want to get up to dish their food, someone says, no, let me dish it up. You stay on the sofa. These unhelpful behaviors. And then the person who's got the pain, when they are alone, this narrative that they tell have been telling for years becomes their internal dialogue. And I always say there's this old Greek, ancient Greek saying, um, character is destiny. But there's a real danger here of your narrative becoming one's destiny. So we do that. That's the preparatory work. Then we also provide them with escape techniques for whenever they have a spike or flare-up of pain. And these can be belly breathing. These can be 
certain relaxations, body scans, and so forth, which are well known. Um, and then we do we ask them to do certain things daily. One of those is a stress reliever because when you in a constant state of stress, you fight flight mechanism, high adrenaline levels, high cortisol levels, that is not an internal environment that you can recover. It just isn't. And that applies to any chronic disease or even acute sudden onset disease. So we've got to get, teach them things like mindfulness, meditation techniques, or they do Qigong or Tai Chi, or there's a array yoga and so forth. They don't have to do more than one thing, but they should focus on reducing their daily stress load. And then we also look at unhelpful and distorted thinking patterns, and because these kind of keep them stuck when they're getting when they get the treatment. What I'd usually recommend the most is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a talk therapy um, or psychotherapy, and it's the most widely studied psychological therapy in 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 the field of medicine, and it's been recommended as treatment for a variety, a wide variety of disorders, such as anxiety, depression, addictions, insomnia, a, uh, attention deficit disorder, just to name a few of them. If this is not in available, we concentrate on just three major thought disorder categories. And if they stick to those as we prescribe, they can reduce their negative thinking by over two thirds. Um, there's studies that suggest this, particularly work done on catastrophization. Um, over and above all this, there's a whole list of topics, including insights and tips that can help them navigate through the changes. Wow. So you're saying that through the use of yoga um, or meditation, even, um, you're able to reduce, uh, someone can reduce uh, possibly reduce their chronic pain? Uh, yes, but it's it's indirectly because what happens, you know, the problem with the treatment of chronic pain, it's complex. It's not rocket science. It's not above anyone's understanding, but it's a lot to change and to hinge on. That's why you've got to make, keep it simple. Give them context. It's got to be customizable and so that they can personalize it because everyone's different. Everyone's life is different. So um, how the thinking patterns help is that those are triggers that set off the pain anew. So, for example, the trigger for chronic pain, if you have chronic pain from a crushed leg in a car accident, you can have an argument with your spouse and suddenly you've got way worse pain because of the adrenaline and, and, and uh, cortisol level, but just being in flight and fight, it's... There's emotional centers in the brain that have been affected by these pain networks that now can trigger back through that network and increase your pain. So we're removing what keeps them back if we were just to say, go back to the healthy behaviors or healthful behaviors you had um, your in terms of your focus thinking patterns and behaviors, but that's like saying, you know, just become physically fit and become ideal body weight, you know, to a person and like leaving them with the advice. That's why the, the artistry, if you like, or the creativity is 
is making it accessible. Because if you look at biopsychosocial, it really encompasses your life. Uh, there's even people who say we should call it biopsychosocial spiritual. Now, I mean, and there's probably more you could add to it, but the world word itself becomes becomes way too manage uh, too long to be manageable. But you know, if if these are all in place, you can make a lot of um, of um, progress. They can make a lot of progress. And when wow. we talk about recovery, this doesn't necessarily mean, you know, people will say, well, I have no pain in a few weeks. And, and I say, oh, I don't know, firstly. But when we talk in terms of recovery, look at the analogy we have with medications and drugs for chronic pain. When we consider the effect on pain, we have to consider the effect on pain levels, their functionality, and their quality of life, because all of those need to be improved. So if there's no benefit in any of these three categories, you have to ask yourself, well, why are you not, why are you giving this drug? There's some risks usually with any drugs, not just opioids. Um, why are they giving this drug if nothing's happening, basically? And then it's reasons for discontinuing it. Now, when it comes to chronic pain, we have to still look at the three. And what you find in chronic pain is that with time, the, the quality of life gets better and the functionality gets better. Of the three, the pain tends to take the longest to become significantly less. Often when you start a program, it even can increase a while because, for a short while because you are so deconditioned. Someone is so deconditioned. But eventually, just having a better quality of life and increased functionality already dampens down the triggers because the person isn't feeling as bad as before. But I have to admit that uh, um, out of the three, the chronic pain in most people improves later than the first two. That's the way it is. And it's because so many factors that impinge on the chronic pain need attention. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that I just, this brings me to a thing about focus and pain scales, because it's one of the reasons I don't recommend endless subjective pain scales. A lot of people will tell you in their history, they'll bring sheets of paper in and they'll say, well, I got phoned by a cousin of mine whom I don't get on with. And right after the call, I just was, I went from a four and a half to an eight and a half. And then I thought about it again when I told my spouse and it was a nine and a half. And this kind of thing, if you're doing it, I'm not saying pain scales are wrong. If your doctors asked you to do it, then do it. But um, over attention to pain scales makes you focus more on the pain. And um, it's also one of the reasons I don't like people to say, I'm going to fight this one doctor. I'm going to fight the pain. I say, no, when you fight pain, where is the damage? The battlefield is your body, your mind rather understand pain. If you increase your adrenaline and your uh, cortisol, basically you're in fight flight. This is not an internal environment in which you can recover. And I mentioned in my book, The Language of Pain, how about rather understanding what chronic pain is and then outwitting or outsmarting it? So that's so you advise that people just really not focus on 
the pain as much as trying to focus on ways to eliminate it. Well, yeah, they should focus. I mean, as I say, if something's hurting a lot, then, you know, it's it's hard to ignore it. But if they focus more on the on, on accumulating advantages in the functionality field, they're able to walk further when they go for a stroll. They're able to maybe play something uh, that they stop, you know, some sort of game or activity they, they have discontinued since developing pain. These are all successes which make a real profound change. And also, um, if they, they end up doing things and more social activity and doing things they enjoy, this increases their quality of life. You must remember that pain, the brain uses pain as a threat signal. So when in response often to what it sees as an ever-shrinking life experience, it, if you like, it freaks out. And that itself becomes a pain trigger. Because of the spread of the pain circuits in the brain, eventually there's a lot of things that can set it off. The net has been cast wide, and this is probably why it takes longer than the other two factors, but it happens. Okay, so, and but this is still based on a treatment plan, you know, for each, depending yeah. on, you know, each individual, yeah. right? So you lay yes. out a treatment plan for that person to kind of help them so they right. understand this process and how it works and how they can move, you know, forward uh, right. in ways that can help them eliminate. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it'll be customized. And I mean, I'm point I'm painting with broad strokes, the categories uh -huh. of that have to be the tick boxes, if you like, have to be checked. And then, I mean, there's people who are very good at biofeedback, these machines that give you uh, information about sensory inputs and so forth and a pulse rate and all this kind of thing and body temperature. And there's some people who do it for five minutes and I can't do this. So everyone's gonna be different, but the categories have to be addressed. And uh, staying on the same plan, I mean, I'm not saying people should leave their doctor, they should stay with whatever treatment they're getting. But this is right. a, um, people often use the word adjunct. They say to me, Dr. Campbell, is this an adjunct therapy? I say, well, an adjunct therapy is an added therapy that can be used, but is generally non-essential. So I don't call it an adjunct therapy. We know from all the experts, nearly every expert, saying that it is essential therapy. So I just call it an added therapy onto the person's treatment plan. So the doctor will be prescribing uh, painkillers or certain kinds of drugs that change pain, the perception mm -hmm. of pain, such as um, anticonvulsants and other drugs are used in chronic pain. A lot of drugs are used off-label in chronic pain. They'll be sent maybe to anesthetists to do the pain blocks. All of that gives relief. It's great. I get people saying, I just got back from Myrtle Beach and um, you know I was able to walk with my grandchildren for 400 meters and they they're tearing up because they couldn't do that before so all these are good milestones and relief uh, events in one's life and something to look forward to but at the end of the day when you stop doing them the pain's still there so this is wow. aimed at removing the cause. And I think that's the biggest point I can really make on it. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, with that, I mean, it, obviously it's something they, that can work in conjunction with their treatment 
and or standalone, depending on everybody's individual uh, needs. So that's awesome. So Dr. Campbell, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which I think is really important, uh, is about the book, uh, your book, which is entitled um, The Language of Pain. When was uh, the book published? And tell me a little bit about your book. Right, so the book was published in April 2019. Um, And since that time, I've developed an online course of the same name because people sometimes need a bit more help This is all very new to them. And this is intended, I'm talking about the course now, is an essential add-on to whatever treatment, pain treatment, someone is already receiving from their family physician, from anesthesiologists that are perhaps doing uh, injection therapy and so on. Now, both the book and the course are evidence-based and and backed by clinical experience. So years and decades of experience have taught us that this works and it's essential. Now, often I get asked, oh, is this adjuvant therapy? In medicine, adjuvant therapy is a term that's used for an added piece that you can do, but it's not essential. So I insist, no, this is an added piece, but it's an added essential piece for recovery to occur, if we are to believe what like most of the chronic pain experts uh, leading uh, people tell us, they say flatly and repeatedly that recovery cannot really occur without this essential piece, because it's the only thing that addresses these harmful neuroplastic brain changes that have already occurred. So um, I, I include, just for the sake of um, clarity, I, have, I don't have a, a list of citations of scientific journals and so forth, but I have included a bibliography because this book, you must remember, was written for lay people. And if you have an annotation every fourth or fifth line to a scientific article, that's going to be, you know... <laughs> It's, it's possibly naive to believe that people are going to rush immediately to read up on it. But I wanted to show them that it's based on good evidence from good journals, even from the editorials of good journals and of manuals and so forth. And so that if they tell their doctor, which I actually encourage people to do, there's the something extra I want to do over and above the treatment I'm getting, they can say it's a biopsychosocial approach and, um, you know, I, I, I've had patients bring books into me and say, by the way, what do you think of this? And I, I would say, look, I haven't read it. I can't specifically recommend it. But if it's written by somebody credible and they cite, uh, you know, they, they cite uh, sources and so forth, it may well be a tri- uh, uh, worth a while. So I think... Basically, what led me to write this book was I got really tired of going to pain conferences, which I always obviously go to because I'm I'm in the field, and hearing from the experts all the time that this is the one piece of essential um, therapy that has to occur for recovery to happen. When usually there weren't that many lectures on it, And everybody stopped at saying it's essential therapy, but like, well, where do you get it? There were were 
there was a shortage of details, let's just put it that way, of how ordinary people can can get can get hold of this because you've got to remember I said earlier in the talk that these are well covered in multidisciplinary pain management programs but at a cost which is very substantial tens of thousands of dollars for six weeks and um, out of the reach of most people unless they have incredible health insurance or they have a, a state or provincial um, workman's compensation sort of uh, coverage. So that's how things stand at the moment. Wow, that's, um, so I guess, what's like the biggest thing you think somebody can take from getting this book? What can, uh, if I go out and purchase this book, you know, what's something that's very valuable that I should be able to take from the book? I think there's a few things. I what I'm hoping they'll, they'll understand is the enormous power we still have over our health outcomes, even in illness. Um, and, you know, there's so much that one can do for oneself. Now, the way Western or Orthodox medicine has gone, it's very drug heavy and i don't say that to just the drug companies i mean there's been amazing discoveries we know for a fact that way many people are way many more people are reaching advanced age even with serious health problems than ever before but at the same time especially in chronic disease the solution cannot only be chemical all the time and what's happened is we've created a culture of expectation that I have a problem. I didn't ask for it. Um, maybe I did a few things wrong, like, you know, like in lung disease, smoking and so forth. But now I need help and there, there better be a pill. And there's actually it's those small things that we do every day that are enormously important because the, the effect is accumulative. So obviously diet's very important we know that and exercise is the other one physical activity that we also push but we we hear less about social connectivity we hear less about stress management we hear a lot less about learning to have better thought a control over our thinking patterns so that would be the overarching theme that i would hope most people get out of this what else they'll realize i had a, a acquaintance of mine who's a nurse um, many years uh, and she said the beauty of this is this is how of this book is this is how the body works so it's going to stay constant these techniques I mean they're going to change there's going to be add-ons but it's the things that need to be done and that's not going to radically change in the next decades or even longer so she actually was very complimentary. She said, Trev, you've written a classic and it's durable, meaning it's obviously going to be relevant in her opinion for a long, long time. So that's what I'm, I'm very pleased about. Wow. And then I guess real quick, um, I wanted to kind of touch a little bit. You talk about uh, rewire uh, your pain to escape. Yes. So maybe we can talk a little bit about okay. that. Okay, I, um, D, I'll just backtrack. Early on in the conversation, I said that, you know, the neurons or nerve cells uh, 
are arranged in circuits like the wiring of a house, just to make an analogy, simple analogy. And I also mentioned that neuroplasticity, which is a very important process uh, in our central nervous system that allows us to learn new things, new information, new skills, equips us for life, um, can be either good or bad. So you learn a new skill, it's good. That's what you wanted to do. But we also learn in inverted commas, chronic pain through our behaviors, our focus, and our thinking patterns, unhelpful thinking patterns. So you, you, chronic pain became wired through these bad changes, but they work in both directions. So with the right techniques, we can undo these unhelpful changes. In fact, everything that I recommend in the book, it's not sort of, it's, it's concepts that are no longer debated as being helpful. The, the, the driver behind the book is really making it simple enough for people to access and motivating them sufficiently where it makes perfect sense to do exactly what is asked as far as they can. Okay. which is as close enough as close enough as possible to what they did prior to the onset of chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, that's, uh, you know, I think that's all uh, just the information is just really valuable. Um, I, I, I think, are there like some tips you want to give uh, people in terms of, of addressing chronic pain and then just kind of close us out of the show, Trevor, because I, I know it's about that time, uh, but right. we do want to thank the audience and, and let's give them some tips and, and take us on out here. Right. Thank you, Dee. Um, I would say to people like you're going to have a few bad days in with chronic pain. That, that's been the history already, but try not to differ, try to differentiate a bad day or classify it as a snapshot of your life and not the movie, because often a single bad three days or a bad week can torpedo all our previous good efforts. There is a thing called the accumulations of small advantages. And if you build on that and you continue, you will succeed. If you're not talented at languages, but you, pers you persist, you will get better. You may not become a professor of that language, but you will improve. Um, it's, a, it's a question of commitment and time. So it's all pretty well laid out in the book. I do encourage um, people to, to, to uh, it's available on Amazon and um, in an ebook as well as a hard copy. And um, it's, it's everything, it, it didn't, Chronic pain didn't happen overnight. So the changes aren't going to be overnight. But with more organization, big strides can be made. So I guess that wraps it up for today. Um, thank you very much, Dee. Um, you've been listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. See you soon. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
have a healthy week. <laughs>